So this fall, we are starting a new series that is about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Wednesdays and Sundays this fall are meant to be a complement to each other. And you have to remember, on Wednesday nights, about a year and a half ago, we did a Theology Together series that I created on pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So we've already had some introduction already to the foundational text about God the Spirit and his work in our lives. But Sundays and Wednesdays this fall are meant to complement. And I hope that there are some things, and I've been praying for this, and you have to remember, I say this at the start of a new series all the time. You have to remember that this series was first designed and prepared summer of 2022. Okay, you got to keep that in mind. In the context of what's going on in your life, the life of this church, it's not like I just decided to do this last night to address whatever you think is going on. Because some of y'all like say to me all the time that um, I'm looking at you while I'm preaching, and I'm designing this just for you, right? <laughs> he looked at me, right? <laughs> so you must remember, this was written and prepared July of 2022, okay? All right. Now, I hope it provides clarity on the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. There are some people that think that the Holy Spirit is just some juju. Like he's a force. He's some sort of ghost. And because of this, they believe that the Holy Spirit can be controlled. Like you can just dispense it to somebody when you want to. Or that it can be manipulated. That you can make God the Spirit do something in your life and someone else's life. We will see that that is an aberration of truth. Of which the Holy Spirit is truth. The Holy Spirit is a person that cannot be controlled and cannot be manipulated. There is no bit and bridle. There is no saddle that you can put upon the Holy Spirit to control him. And he has a singular agenda, which we will see over the coming Sundays and Wednesdays what that agenda is. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not to give a singular person a unique and special experience. Many people, unfortunately, in the West, when they talk about the Holy Spirit, they're always sharing of some experience that they uniquely had. And you know what the effect is? Well, why doesn't God the Spirit do that in my life? Why does God the Spirit treat me this way? What's so special about this other person that they have these unique experience of God that I don't have? That's not the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians. The ministry of the Holy Spirit isn't to give a person this unique and special experience, but to drive all Christians to the same end, the same shared common experience, which is the experience of God's Son, the experience of Jesus as living water to your soul, as bread of life to your soul. I hope it also addresses the ease in the West by which people just so easily say that they are Christian. Even though this is in decline in America, it's still out there. Many people still in America say they believe in Jesus, even though it is at an all-time low since research and surveys have been conducted. Many people in the West and in America consider themselves Christians. However, that overarching number begins to dwindle when they begin to account for people who say they are Christians and regularly attend church. Do you get that? And then that number dwindles again 
for those who say they are Christians and they meaningfully belong to a local church through membership. Do you get that? All these people out there say that they're Christians, but that number is drastically smaller than those who say they are Christians and they meaningfully belong to a local church. And it's just really in America. The East doesn't talk like this. You can't find this in the East because it's, it's jeopardizing to their physical lives to be able to publicly say that they're a Christian. Okay. Christians in America say they believe in Jesus, but in reality, and this is the heartbeat of this upcoming series, in reality, that belief they say they have in Jesus, it has no real impact. There is no powerful day-to-day -day impact on their character, how they think, how they feel, how they speak, and how they act. This is one of the most alarming things to non-Christians in the West. They cannot tell a difference between them as non-Christians with people who say they are Christians. Do you get that? Imagine for a moment that there are two identical muscle cars before you. If muscle cars aren't your thing, replace them with whatever vehicle is your thing, okay? Some of y'all are Ford, some of y'all are Chevy, I know. Two identical vehicles set before you. But in reality, they look the same on the outside, but they're not the same. How can you tell the difference? Well, you've got to take a look underneath the hood. And that is what our Fruits series is going to do. Our Fruits series this fall is going to be a look underneath the hoods of our lives. We are going to get inside the car, take a look underneath the hood to see what drives a Christian and how it's fundamentally different from what drives a non-Christian. And just as if I sat before some of you strong men who love to work on vehicles and know what you're looking at, if I were to come alongside you, I would have no idea what I'm looking at. Though there was uh, several weeks ago, I was just uh, hanging out with Kagan, and um, he was working on a vehicle, and I could identify coils and cylinders. So I'm learning all this time out here in Branchton. It's not, it's not too bad for me. But this is what we're going to do. It may be that if we opened you up, if we popped the hood and we looked inside, we'd find that you are filled with the same stuff as a non-Christian. There's no difference on the inside. And there's no difference about who you are from before you said you believe in Jesus to where you are today. So the fundamental question we have to ask is this. How does this change? How is it that a single human being can change in how they used to view God and how they view God today? Well, we rejoice, as we began to do last Wednesday night, that all of us are stuck in a valley, right? And we are dry, dead bones, and we have to be brought back to life, right? And that is the work and the joy of the ministry of God the Spirit in our lives. That is his singular agenda, which he seeks to give to everybody equally and commonly. Let's get to our proposition today. Remember, this is the one idea that I pray, I try to condense to a single sentence that drives along the text that we look at that honors God's word and the intended meaning. And it's this. The Holy Spirit proves a person belongs to God 
by growing the character of Jesus into them. Now, notice I used a verb that is continual, growing. Not has grown or will grow, but growing, which necessitates that it's a process, right? And thank God that it's a process because I would be disqualified. Over the next two months, we are going to look at what's traditionally called the fruits of the Spirit of Galatians 5. And here are some of the things you're going to see. Underneath the hood, there is a real difference between a non-Christian and a Christian. Different engines drive these two vehicles to different destinations. Both kinds of people get married and have kids. Both kinds of people go to work, earn an income, pay bills, pay taxes, right? Both kinds of people have hobbies, go out and have fun. And of course, both kinds of people live and die. Both kinds will. But what drives the Christian is fundamentally different. The engine that drives the Christian is not religion, but it's the Holy Spirit. The engine that drives the non-Christian is themselves, or what Paul calls the flesh. We're going to look at both kinds of engines in this fall series. And we're going to see that it is God's work in us by giving us his son that provides us with a new engine that powers our lives. We're going to see that it's the ministry of God the Spirit to work the character of Jesus into us, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. That's why it's so essential for you as a Christian to put your roots down somewhere. And we say it doesn't have to be at heritage. It doesn't. In the West, there are thousands of choices for you, but you have to put your roots down somewhere because a church plays a vital role. A pastor plays a vital role. The preaching and teaching plays a vital role in the Holy Spirit growing you into his son. So whether it's here at Heritage or somewhere else, we do say God bless in any destination. Wherever you go and whatever you do, put your roots down and expose yourself to scripture, to a man who preaches and teaches God's word, and the fellowship of the saints, your adopted brothers and sisters. All those things the Holy Spirit uses to grow you into Jesus. So the proof that we are Christians, therefore, is not necessarily your profession of faith at VBS when you were five years old. Or when you went to summer camp when you were 15 years old and made a profession of faith and got baptized in the Atlantic Ocean. Or whatever ocean you were at. James... Jesus' half-brother says that even demons believe in who Jesus is, right? Demons are not Christians, so therefore, your profession of faith doesn't necessarily mean that you are a Christian. The proof that we are Christians is in what we're going to do next week. It's the beginning of a new month, which is Lord's Supper. We will get to observe and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That is not necessarily proof that you are a Christian. And it's not necessarily proof that you are a Christian, that you have been baptized. Even it's been fully immersed, which what we do here at Heritage is we dunk you. Because that word baptizo means to fully immerse. That's easy belief for us. You tell us a baptizo, we will baptize fully. Immersion. But that's not proof. The proof that we are Christians is found in what's underneath the hood of your life. 
And that is why many people don't sit underneath pastors, they don't sit underneath the Bible, and they don't sit underneath the authority of a local church because they don't want you to see what's underneath their hoods. Because if you could see, if they did pop the hood, you would see there is no difference between a Christian and non-Christian, though they have said all along that they are Christians. That's why people leave. Do you get that? Okay. Today, we're going to do three things. We're going to see the unique struggle that all Christians, genuine Christians, experience. Well, wait, Christian struggle? Yes. And I will say that the struggle is the proof you are a Christian. We'll get there today. And hopefully it's reassuring to your heart. This struggle does not forfeit your salvation. The struggle is proof that we are growing into the character of Jesus. We're going to see the end for what drives both the Christian and the non-Christian. I hope today brings clarity. This is what the end of a non-Christian looks like. And this is what the end of a Christian looks like. Holy Spirit, come what may. And then we're going to end in application. And I pray that we, at the end of our service today, we are wholeheartedly going to say, Holy Spirit, here am I. Here's all of me. I'm giving myself to you. Because you came upon Jesus at his baptism, and he gave himself unto death for me. That's today's service in a nutshell. You ready? Oh, yep. All right, let's do it. Point one. First off, we have to do this. We have to acknowledge the battle that's going on inside over what truly satisfies. This is what the Christian uniquely struggles with. Non-Christians don't struggle with this. There is a unique struggle that takes place in the Christian. We call it the waging war of sin. There's an awesome Shane and Shane song that's just called that, Waging War. And it's all about this concept that only Christians face. Non-Christians do not have this issue. Non-Christians do not wake up on a Sunday morning and it's like, oh, I really want to go to church, but I really like my pillow. They don't do that. Unlike a non-Christian, a Christian struggles between what they want and what God wants. It's unique to the Christian. It is the struggle that a new engine has been installed in the frame of a car that has gotten used to driving a certain way. Non-Christian struggle, don't get me wrong, but it isn't a struggle to live up to what God wants for you. The non-Christian struggle is essentially this. It's a struggle of actualizing their desires. They have environments that they have to control and manipulate. They have relationships that they have to control and manipulate. And they have their own unique barriers to achieve their desires. That's the struggle of a non-Christian. How do I control my environment, manipulate my environment, control and manipulate the relationships in my life, and control just what I got to get what my flesh and my body wants? That's the struggle of the non-Christian, and that's our inheritance, unfortunately, from Adam and Eve. It doesn't matter if we were to go to South Africa, we would find people that that's their struggle. It wouldn't matter if we were to go to Southeast Asia, that is the struggle of the non-Christian, or here in the West, or go to Central America. The fundamental struggle of a non-Christian is, I want something, I haven't been able to get it, and I'm trying to figure out the gap, and I'm trying to bridge that gap. Do you get it? But a shift takes place in the Christian. 
And this change takes place in the Christian because of the new covenant, which we looked at on Wednesday night, where God removes that hard heart that's set on self and then gives us a new heart for Jesus. God installs his spirit into us to straighten out our spiritual scoliosis, going back to Proverbs now. Essentially, God has to put a new engine in the Christian. And that is how the Christian and the non-Christian are fundamentally different. We may look at the same, look the same on the outside, but pop the hood. The brains, the nuts, the bolts, the engines are different. If you look underneath the hood, there are two different engines that drive our lives. The non-Christian has a hard heart towards God and a flesh that simply wants to work out whatever it is that they desire. That's it. The Christian has a new heart, has the presence of the Holy Spirit, but we still have that same non-Christian flesh. That whether it's for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 50 years before you came to Christ, you had certain routines, certain ways to satisfy your desires, and then boom, you become a Christian. And that's like, I want to do what God wants, but I still have the same frame that wants to go a certain way, that I've always gone. That's the struggle, unique struggle of the Christian. And Jesus spoke of this to his disciples the night that he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And thank God we look at this like a month ago. Let's revisit it. In Matthew 26, 41, Jesus told those sleeping disciples, right, what do you do late at night? You go to sleep, right? It's what our bodies do. It's what our bodies need. And they could not struggle against that to stay awake. And look at what Jesus says to them. Keep watching, keep praying, that you may not enter into temptation. But this is the next phrase I want you to see. He tells disciples, Christ followers, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? Jesus acknowledges that his finished work on the cross was the beginning of a new work in people. There are two realities operating inside every single genuine Christian. The flesh, which Paul and Jesus say, and then the spirit. The spirit is willing to walk with Jesus, to keep watching, to keep praying, to stay awake even though you're tired, to keep coming to church, keep opening your Bible when you feel like all hope is lost, or you just had a long weekend really here in America. But then, oh, the flesh is so weak. That is our context for beginning to see the battle that is going on in the Christian between their flesh and the spirit, which non-Christians do not have. Let's look at our first verse. Verse 16. Paul says, walk by the spirit. Result, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So simple, Paul. You make it sound so easy, right? This is a principle. And you know, applying principles to life in every situation, there's unique dynamics, right? But this is the principle set forth. The Christian, at the moments of regeneration, has received the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So Paul teaches a principle right here about what's going to drive your life. The principle is walk by the Spirit. Very simple but so complex. That's the gospel. If you're looking for simplicity, you're not going to necessarily be happy. 
because it's not one plus one equals two. Both Old and New Testament illustrates what it means to be a Christian through this imagery of walking. And we discussed this in our Proverbs series recently. I've told you during the Proverbs series that one of my favorite things to do on this earth is simply to go for a walk with Tisa. Isn't that crazy? When I was a kid, it was video games, right? And don't knock, I'm not knocking video games. It's still appealing to me. Watching a game of baseball, right? Still appealing to me. But over time, a change has happened in me. One of my favorite things to do on the planet is simply to go for a walk. And then it's amplified depending on what the environment is of our walk. You know that my wife and I love to go to a little place 60 miles east of us, right? But let me tell you why. There's this one, there's this one place that's called Epcot. And it's a body of water. And then there's pavement basically around with all of these booths filled with food. You know what we do? Eat and walk, walk and eat, eat and walk, walk and eat. It's amazing. Walking is side-by-side time. Walking is an opportunity for this guy who gets paid two jobs to do this all day to do this. That's just I fail at a lot. But it's an opportunity, opportunity for me to listen and hear. Walking forces you to slow down and focus. And if any of you have ever been in those environments with me, you know how hard it is for me to slow down even in my walking. Walking puts you in a position to see another person intimately, face to face. Paul says, Christians do this with the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit. That is why Jesus says, in the Gospel of John, that his spirit will be with you side by side and in you. We have the ability, therefore, to listen to God because of the Holy Spirit. We have the opportunity and the ability to talk to God because of the Holy Spirit. It is a step-by-step walking endeavor that, yes, you have to do every day, because where would you be if you'd have a drink of water today, right? That's a duh for us with physical thirst. But then we're left wondering why we feel so dark and empty spiritually when we don't treat his spirit as if he's only what he said he is, living water that you need for your soul, right? The Holy Spirit is inside all Christians to walk them to the same shared common fountain the same common shared destination, which is Jesus himself. Remember, he told the Samaritan woman, you drink water out of this well, you're going to thirst again. You drink me, never thirst again. Something will happen in you and to you if you walk with Jesus like this every single day, walking by his spirit. Paul says that you will not carry out the desires of your flesh. Naturally, both Christians and non-Christians have desires. This does not change just because you say, I believe you, Jesus. It doesn't change. It doesn't change just because there's a new engine inside of you. Christians and non-Christians have desires of the flesh. My desires are relevant to my nature and relevant to my flesh. 
your desires are relevant to your nature and your flesh. Sometimes you may look at me and see some of my struggles and say, why does pastor struggle like this? I would never struggle this way. And vice versa, someone else may look at your struggle and say, you struggle with that? But God's people are not meant to be this way. We understand that we all have weaknesses and desires that come from the same source, our nature. And we can only do what is according to nature. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many self-help books that you read, no matter how many therapeutic treatments that you go through, you can only be that which is in your nature. And you and I both have struggles according to our nature. My struggle, for example, is perfectionism. And what struggles my, what powers my perfectionism is shame. That's me. I'm like, I don't care if I don't bet a thousand. I'm happy with 250. But I struggle with it. Your struggle may be selfishness. But both come from the same place. It comes from our nature. Both desires have the same result. It separates us from God. How can I see God as perfect when I'm too busy trying to be perfect myself? Right? Both desires are pathways that we have chosen according to our nature that we're going to walk to get to the end that we think we're going to experience. The desires of our flesh are at war with the desires of the Spirit of Jesus in us. And let's see this taught right now. Verse 17, Paul says, The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit sets its desires against the flesh. Look at this. They are in opposition to one another. Why? So that you may not do the things that you please. Christianity gets a bad rap in American culture. That if you become a Christ follower, it's going to be a lackluster, joyless life with so many unfulfilled desires. Polity is contrary. The spirit is fighting against the desires of your flesh. So you don't do what the desires of your flesh are. And your flesh is struggling against the desires of the spirit. So it doesn't do what the spirit wants you to do. Your flesh and God's spirit is fighting against each other over what truly satisfies in life. My desire for perfectionism is how I naturally deal with shame. But it has never and never will truly satisfy. It doesn't erase my shame. It only covers my shame. Only Jesus can properly and totally deal with my shame. And he took the cross as the final consequence of my shame. So I would not experience the final consequence of my shame. The same goes with whatever desire that you truly are driving your life with. Our flesh opposes what God wants to do in your life through, your, through his spirit. This battle is about who is going to drive my life. America tells you it's individualism. You drive your life. Your body, your desires. You drive your life. That's America. Only one engine is going to power and drive your life. And that engine that powers your life is going to take you down one path or another. 
And let's take a look at this reality. Verse 18, Paul says that if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under, under the law. Look at the conclusion that Paul makes about walking with and by the Holy Spirit. If you are led by the Spirit of Jesus, you're not under the law. And we have to ask, what does Paul mean by this? Because people, the idea is called antinomianism. That because you're a Christian, you don't have to follow any law. You have to like do anything because God freed you from the law. You're not under the law. There's a lot of confusion about this phrase from the early church still till today. For Paul, it doesn't mean any of that. For Paul, the law is what reveals your sin and what your flesh is currently desiring above God. That's the function of the law. The law is meant to show you your hard heart or your spiritual scoliosis. So essentially when Paul says this is that the law operates as a mirror to show you who you really are. What Paul meant, or the question we ask is, what does Paul mean that the Christian, the person who's truly led by the Spirit, is not under the law? What does he mean by this? And here's what it means. When he says you're not under the law, it means that Jesus put himself under the law for you. Jesus put upon his shoulders what was on you. That's what he means. You are meant to experience the, the freeness of not having condemnation, of being underneath this mirror that's constantly showing you who you are. It means that Jesus took the condemnation of the law off of your shoulders onto yourself. That's a grand claim. Let me put a Bible scripture to it. All right? Romans chapter 8. Whose favorite chapter of scripture? Can you see why? I say this every time. And we're still 27 verses away from my favorite verse. Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's enough to make the point. But there's more. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Those who are in Jesus, those in whom the Holy Spirit indwells, are not condemned by the law. We get to look in the mirror and not be like, ooh, to it. Because Jesus was ravaged by the reflection, so you wouldn't be. But this is why people avoid Scripture. This is why people avoid listening to preaching and teaching. They don't want to feel condemnation. But they have a total misunderstanding of the gospel. Because the gospel is the way up is down. The way to gain life is to lose life. And to become a Christian, you have to feel the weights of your sins. And you have to feel the condemnation, yes, of your nature, where it would leave you. So that you can realize what the cross did for you. Jesus took on the condemnation of the Christian. So we learn there is a real battle in the Christian. A real battle, a unique battle that non-Christians don't have. A life and death battle in the Christian between our flesh and Jesus' spirit. And a part of fighting this battle is seeing what the final destination looks like for both of those paths. For the Christian and for the non-Christian. And that is where we're going in point two. So let's take a look at it. What you are meant to see are the changes that your flesh 
and God's Spirit seek to create in you. And we're going to see that just because your body wants something doesn't mean you should do it. Remember, what's powering your engine, your car, isn't you anymore. It's the Holy Spirit. And just because you want something doesn't mean you should do it. Let's get to it. If you put a new engine in a car right now, if you upgrade the engine, most likely you're going to see and feel the difference. Eventually you'll get used to it, but that's a different subject entirely about drift and staying focused. But you'll be able to feel a difference. You can have the same car frame, the same road you've always gone down, the same set of tires on it, and you can go to same speed, but initially you're going to feel the difference. And Paul moves right now to show you what the real difference is between the Christian and the non-Christian. Let's see it. Verses 19 through the first part of 21. Paul says that the deeds of the flesh are evidence, which are, and there's some strange words in here. We'll get to it. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, what? enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. Paul says, first glance, that your flesh's desires are clear and evident. Why is that? Because the law is a mirror. It's on paper now, calling you out. And there's most likely... For many of us, one word you're gravitating towards right now, and it's making you feel itchy. No one wants to be told that they're a sinner. They have hard hearts. They have spiritual scoliosis, myself included. you get that? No one wants to be told that. Scripture is what God has given to us to see what we really look like. And it challenges how you view sin, because this is how we all view sin. It's never as bad as the other person, right? How many times have I excused myself, for example, my marriage because I say, I'm not as bad as that guy, right? Sin is deceiving. But here's reality. It's not deceiving to anybody else. It's just deceiving to you. You get that? It deceives you into thinking that you can actually hide what it is what you really want, which is why here at Heritage we say that we look at words and actions over time as the proof of what's underneath the hood, and why we'll continue to say that. Now, let's address some of these words on the list. Number one, this list is not exhaustive. It's not like, hey, I'm good, right, because perfectionism isn't on the list. Woo! No, 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 no. And same thing with your, with your struggle, with your natural struggle. You have to remember that Paul wrote this as a letter almost now 2,000 years ago to a particular audience of Christians. These Christians were part of a region that's in modern-day Turkey. And Paul is addressing things that they were struggling with as a church. That should change the way you read this, right? The Christians in the local church of Galatia struggle with sorcery. What did that look like? Idolatry. Like they really thought that Zeus was in the thunder and lightning and Poseidon was in the ocean's depths. They struggled with idolatry, yet they were a church. That's heartening a little bit, right? 
Now, you and I do not think that Zeus is in the thunder and lightning or that Poseidon is in the waters, but you have replaced God with something. There is something that you are serving as your functional God that is not Christ Jesus. Because there's no difference underneath the hood. Earlier in Paul's letter, he acknowledged that some of these Christians were beginning to desert Jesus and desert the church. I want you to take a look at it. In chapter 1 of the same letter, in verses 6 and 7, Paul says, I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which really isn't another. There are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Do you see the urgency and the tone in this, the plea, the wonder? Some who attended these local churches in Galatia were deserting Jesus. They were deserting the church. Has that changed in 2,000 years, Heritage? No, it has not. They're abandoned Jesus. And still people today abandon Jesus for a different gospel, one that distorts the life and the teaching of Jesus. So what you need to see here is that some people who have articulated or, are, or consider themselves Christians eventually desert Jesus. Actually, they desert the church first because they still maintain Jesus. But then time goes by and then they desert Jesus because and for a different gospel that aligns with their desires. And America has a whole smorgasbord of offerings to do this. This kind of gospel is not Christianity. It's a version of Christianity. To say it stronger, an aberration of Christianity. And it's a version of Christianity of their own choosing. Because it allows them to maintain the look, and no one can look underneath the hood, because underneath the hood is their desires above everything else. This is what Christ's church has always had to deal with. Always. This was written in the mid-first century. We're in the 21st century dealing with the same fundamental struggles because we're dealing with the same fundamental, fundamental nature of people. The battle between what's underneath the hood. You are going to be tempted to replace biblical Christianity with a version of Christianity that's going to get you what you think you want. And you can find a church and find a teaching to support that, but it's not Christianity. It's not. It's replacing Christianity with religion so that people will not pop the hood and see what's underneath. All genuine Christians battle. And this needs to fundamentally change our church community. Do you get it? I struggle. There's a battle going on inside of me. It doesn't matter if I've been a Christian since I was 15 years old. There is still a struggle going on inside of me. And I'm your pastor. How much more? You. You get that? This should have us put gloves on us as we care and hold each other as the body of Christ. You are struggling. I am struggling. Hold each other lightly and tenderly and with gloves. Right? Should lead us to compassion. So let's look at the end. 
of those who are driven to a destination by their flesh. This is the rest of verse 21. Paul says things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, then here it is, that those who practice, key verb, we'll get to it, such things, here's the end, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice the deeds of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sorry, pastor, just because perfectionism isn't on Paul's list doesn't mean you are excluded. You are underneath the same mirror that everybody else is looking at. But let's focus on the word practice for a moment. If I practice something, it is a part of my everyday routine. Every day. If I practice law, I'm dealing with legal matters every single day. If I practice medicine, I am dealing with issues and people in the realm of medicine every day. If you practice the desires of your flesh, it's that thing that you must do every single day. Desire is going to drive you to a destination. That's your takeaway right now. Your desire is going to drive you to one or the other destination. So therefore, you have to ask yourself is, what is the greatest desire that is going to yield to me the greatest of destinations? Do you get that? And that's the engine of your life. Now, this is different than when a Christian sins. Paul considered himself to be the chief of sinners. Did you know that? In the pastorals, when he was writing to Timothy and Titus, we get a lot of biographical stuff. And he talks about him, that he considered himself to be the chief of sinners. I view Paul, I'm like, Jesus is like up here, but Paul, I mean, Paul's like right there for me. And he considered himself the chief of sinners. wonder what his sin was, right? But it all comes from the same nature. To be a Christian does not mean you are sinless. It does mean that you are growing to leave the practice of sin. It means that you're in repair. It means that I am in repair. My spiritual scoliosis is being straightened out. It means that you are trusting the one who took on your sin to straighten out that scoliosis. I am going to sin, and you are going to sin. But the Christian is growing so that sin doesn't dominate our lives. And there is a fundamental difference between the two. Sin is not our practice anymore. Sin is not what drives us. Though for the rest of our lives, we still fall short. Because you know what? My frame still bends, right? And there is no one who can smelt it back into its original design. There's no welder that can do that for me, but one alone. All who practice the desires of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God because underneath the hood, the Holy Spirit isn't their engine. Even if they attend church, even if they serve a church, even if they like Jesus and they got the shirt, Jesus is my homeboy. We don't wear those much anymore. That was early 2000s. I'm so glad I'm getting dated. This is great. 
Now let's see the deeds of those who are driven by the Spirit of Jesus. Verses 22 and 23. Paul says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. But here's the thing. This is where we're spending the rest of the seven, eight weeks. This is where we're sitting down for a while. And the first thing I need to tell you is, non-Christians love. Non-Christians have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, all that. And honestly, I've told you, I have met non-Christians who actually have better character than people who consider themselves to be Christians. I'm surrounded by non-Christians every single day in education. And there are, in terms of civic righteousness, some good people out there. But this is not what Paul is referring to. But this is the list that from here on out that we're going to be focusing on each week. We are going to see, we're going to isolate one of these character qualities. And we're going to see how that this word is a work of God's spirit in the Christian. And then we're going to see that what the spirit of Jesus is seeking to create in you is fundamentally different than how this word operates in a non-Christian. And next week, you know where we're going? Non-Christians do not love the enemy. We cancel them. We marginalize them. We hurt them. Jesus took a cross for them. That's real love. And that's the truest sign that the Holy Spirit is working in you. Not that you love your spouse. Not that you love your DNA. But you love people who are your enemy. That's next week. Because non-Christians don't love the enemy. They kill them, marginalize them, ostracize them. And in American culture, we cancel them. You get that? That's a little sneak peek for next week. Both Christians and non-Christians love. However, the love of the Christian is fundamentally different than the love of the non-Christian because the Holy Spirit is working the love of Jesus into them and then the joy of Jesus into them and on and on as we go in the weeks to come. That is why it is our mission here at Heritage to love the people of Jesus with the love of Jesus until the return of Jesus. Because a mission like that, if you make that your heartbeat mission, not just loving your DNA, but loving the people of Jesus with the love of Jesus until the return of Jesus, it lets us see what's underneath your hood, unlike any other. That's why it's the number one here at Heritage. The Holy Spirit's ministry in the Christian is to work the character of Jesus into them. Something is going to drive your life, beloved. So consider the ends of both. What is going to be the engine of your life? What's going to drive what you practice? Is it going to be the flesh or is it going to be the spirit? Now let's move to application. So our response today, this is what it's got to be. Offer. Offer all of yourself. Offer all of yourself to the one. Offer all of yourself to the one who gave his all for you. That's our, that, I can't think of a different way to respond to this text today. But we've got one more verse that will make this clear. The call today is for you to set Jesus and set his spirit as the engine of your life. We do this by offering ourselves to Jesus because Jesus offered all of himself up on the cross for you. But here's the thing that we have to acknowledge about our flesh. Our flesh, whether you're a non-Christian, you've been a Christian for a week, or you've been a Christian for decades. 
we are all still stuck in the same flesh, and that flesh is selfish. It puts you first before others. It puts you and your relationships before others. And it definitely puts you before God. It puts you before his church. Even if you attend church, you're still going to be tempted to put yourself before God and church and people who aren't your family. Whether you've been a Christian for a week or decades. Here's the reality, though, that you have to acknowledge walking out of this place today. Your flesh does not seek your best. Do you get that? Your body does not have your best interest at heart. It wants to sabotage you. And if you don't walk out of this place today affirming that, we got some work to do. Your flesh does not have your best interest at heart. It has its best interest. Just because you want to do something doesn't mean it is God's best for you. We all have desires, myself included, that if we gave into it, it would lead to self-destruction. Christians, though they struggle, we don't offer ourselves up to the things that we used to for satisfaction. We don't. We're growing and walking a different path now. We instead offer ourselves to Jesus because he offered all of himself for us. Now, let's look at the final verse, verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. So if, if you consider yourself included in this phrase, those who belong to Christ Jesus, let's look underneath the hood. They have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Verse 24 helps us see what it looks like to offer yourself to Jesus who first offered himself for you. Jesus, based on this verse, it's implied that Jesus first crucified his flesh. Jesus took on flesh, Jesus suffered in the flesh, and he suffered on the cross. His suffering was real. This isn't some fairy tale. He experienced real physical suffering where literally his body was nailed down so it couldn't run away for self-preservation. You know, when you're in pain, you stay home. He couldn't do that. Do you get that? You have a headache, you stay home from church. Jesus didn't do that. You get that? Have a little tummy ache. He didn't do that. He was nailed down. There's no self-preservation. He had to face his flesh, something by which people in America have a hard time doing. Paul says, therefore, those who belong to Jesus, they crucify their flesh too. But we've got to be clear as to what Paul means by this. Because the Catholic Church, for example, got it wrong. They got the theology right, the application wrong. Where they would self-flatulate themselves. They would hurt themselves, right? For As penance. They have a desire. They're going to kill their desire in their body, right? This is not what Paul means. By crucify, Paul means to kill. But the passions and desires in our lives that dishonors Jesus must be killed, not literally our flesh, through hurting each other. You could literally hear a cricket in the room right now. 
love it. I love it. God is so good. So good. So how does this happen, Heritage? How are the passions and desires of our nature crucified? And here it is. Here's some hope. It's replacing those lesser desires with greater desires. That's it. C.S. Lewis has it right. The child in London who's playing with mud pies in the slum, the reason why when someone comes up to him and says, hey, free holiday by the sea, let's go. And he says, no, I'm content with mud pies. It's because we're far too easily pleased. We're okay with the lesser desires. We're okay with mediocre because it gets us by. It's just enough. We have no idea if we would just go to the holiday at the sea, such pleasure and satisfaction we would experience. And Jesus is that holiday by the sea. And he secured this free holiday for you by his death. He paid the cost. Or, I'll leave Lewis and go to how we talk about things here at Heritage. If you were freely offered an unlimited daily supply of filet, would you still be going to that lesser experience of the drive through burger? When I want a burger, I would put that filet through the meat grinder and make my own filet burger. Right? Do you get it? How do you kill the lesser desires in your life? You replace it with greater. And you walk it every day. Maybe it's just me then. If I had a free, unlimited offer of filet every day, I'd never go to this drive through burgers. Okay, John said, nope, <laughs> me too, I'm there. And I pray that it resonates in your heart spiritually as well, that you're hearing with your spiritual ears right now. The Holy Spirit is that filet. That's the point of the series. And that's where application is about. Christians offer up their thoughts, their feelings, their words, their actions, all of those things that dishonors what God has done for them in Jesus. So every day I must wake up and kill my desire of perfectionism and what it does to me when I do things wrong. i got to do it. I can't just stop. But in the same vein, it is the Holy Spirit in me that's powering my engine to be able to do that. We have the Spirit of Jesus with us and in us. The Spirit is the means by which we can stomp out those desires of the flesh that dishonors what God has done for us in Jesus. So what does this look like? It just looks like walking with God, doing the simple, clear things he has told us to do. Prayer, scripture reading, and the body of Christ, the church. These are the three mechanisms by which the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Our times of prayer, our times in the word, and our experiences with locked-in brothers and sisters in Christ. When you walk with God in this way, you are feasting on filet. I promise you this. When you walk with God this way over time, he will give you the greater experience of satisfaction. And then you'll look back to when you're a kid or when you're a teenager or when you're in your 20s and when you're in your 30s. You say, I struggled with that when this was offered to me. 